1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of Ask Noah kicks off this hour. Josh writes in and says, Hey, Noah, all at, at, home, at points in the past, I've created bootable USB drives with Linux using DD, pen drive, Linux, etc. However, I've never had great success getting the device to boot with a PC and a Mac. What is the best way recommended for creating USB bootable flash drives that work across PC, Mac, with UEFI and or BIOS? Thanks, Josh. So we'll start here, Josh. I actually do use DD. Uh, That's how I burn all of my USB flash sticks. Um, And that should work for you. Um, Make sure that you're specifying at the very end of your command, sudo DD, uh, you know, specify the block size, the input device, the output device. And then at the end, add a space, two ampersands, so ampersand, ampersand, and then a space, and then the word sync. And what that will do is prevent you from removing the USB media too soon. What might be happening, Josh, is it might be writing parts of that file to the flash drive, and you may be ejecting the drive pulling it out before it's actually finished writing, and that's why you're not able to use that drive to install Linux. On 2004, the media checks by default to see if the USB media has been made correctly, and, and, and this is why, uh, because it stops a lot of errors. And the number of times that we've responded to a trouble call where somebody says, hey, this thing, this USB thing isn't booting, and we take a look at it, and it turns out the install media is flawed. And that can be because of a faulty ISO. It can be because there was a problem during writing. It can be because you took it out too soon. And so by default, 2004 is going to check to make sure that the image was written properly to the flash drive. Uh, And this keeps people from wiping out their their perfectly working installation off of their system in place for one that they attempted to install from a USB stick and then failed. I dealt with this myself just a few weeks ago. And uh, it's frustrating because if you don't have a backup, drive to recover your installation from or to begin a new installation, then uh, you're stuck with a non bootable operating system. And worse yet, if you don't have a second machine to use to create a second backup bootable installation, then you can't recover your system. So uh, that's why that's on by default. Now, I've listed the DD command that I use in the show notes at com slash 201. Don't copy and paste it. Make sure that you're using the right drive letter here. I chose SDB by default. Um, because on my machine, that's what's going to show up as the first flash drive I plug it. But I've also given you the command LSBLK, and that's going to list your block devices and or drives. And you're going to want to make sure to run LSBLK and take a look at which drive matches up to the size capacity of your flash drive. So you plug in a 16, flash drive, 16 gigabyte flash drive drive, you're going to look to see which drive letter SDA, SDB, SDC is going to be assigned to that flash drive. Now, if that doesn't work for you still there is another option there's a graphical option there's a software called etcher.io and etcher is a graphical software for writing isos and image files to the flash drive now one of the one of the features that they advertise is that it verifies the image after it's been burned to the flash drive so this should solve a lot of your issues it's free and open source it has a beautiful interface and it's cross-compatible, it works on all systems. It works on Mac, Linux, and Windows. And so no matter what operating system you're starting from, what operating system you're trying to go to, Etcher is a great way for you to do that. They provide it as an app image on Linux. So you just have to download it, right click on it, click on properties, find the tick box that says make executable, and you'll be writing USB drives in no time. Now, if you're on a Windows box or a Mac box, you can do the same thing. Go ahead and download the application. Mac, it's going to be a DMG. Windows, it's going to be an executable. But Either way, the software is going to function the way you expect it to. Give that a shot, Josh. If it doesn't work, give me an email back or give us a call at 855-450-NOAH. it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. At Adrian Aiden White writes in and says, since hearing your show on the current capabilities of IP security cameras, I've started to look at them myself, but for a slightly different purpose. I'm interested in watching a bird feeder. I'm looking for a good quality image, weatherproof, some sort of night vision, as well as being completely wireless and LAN only. The camera will probably be sitting 10 to 15 feet from the actual feeder. Do you have any suggestions on a camera and software that might work for this? So I'll tell you right off the bat, the most most difficult part of your question is the wireless part. Because there are two things that come through the Ethernet wire. That, that run the camera. And the first is obviously the data connection. Now, Wi-Fi has existed for a long enough time and it's reliable enough that we can get by with Wi-Fi cameras as long as we have decent access points within range. The second function, though, that that Ethernet, jack, or Ethernet cable usually provides is power to the camera. Now, this is going to be much more difficult, not impossible, but much more difficult to replicate uh, out in a tree or at, uh, on, a, on, a, on a bird stand. Now, if you have your bird feeder very close to some other power source obviously your problem is solved but i'm going to assume that you don't have power very close uh, to the bird feeder and i was trying to come up with a different way that we could solve this problem for you so the first thing i did we're going to have to find some power now there's a nuclear reactor in the sky that we can take advantage of if we have some hardware and so what i would do is take a small little uh 100 watt solar panel and i would connect that into uh, an adapter made uh by a company out of Texas that it's essentially a POE injector, but it's a POE injector that allows you to interface with some things that aren't so quite standard, right? So usually a POE injector just has an AC power cord. You plug it in, plug uh, your network into one, plug the other cable into whatever the device you want to power, and it it takes the network, combines it with the power, and away you go. Um, This device does very much the same thing, except you can take the feed from a 12-volt power source, and this is beneficial because it allows us to attach a battery to our solar panel and that, that when the sun is out, it's going to charge up the battery and then the battery will uh, power the power over Ethernet injector and thus power the camera. Now, Axis has a wide lineup of cameras to include ones in their P-series that will connect over Wi-Fi. So if you want to go this route, that's the, that's the direction I would go. If you find, which I think you very well might find, that it will be a lot easier to to trench a cable in the ground Uh, or string a cable up than it is to try to build some sort of uh, contraption that will power this camera outdoors. If you find that you want to do that, I would recommend using something like Tough Cable from Ubiquity. In addition to having a much stronger uh, weather-resistant jacket, it also features a small grounding wire inside of the cable that can be attached securely to each end of the RJ45 connector. And then that RJ45 connector has metal connectors that will then connect to a grounding system, either on the Unify switch uh, or on the other end if you, you, have, a, you have a camera. Um, so I, I would recommend putting using that cable if you do a hardwired cable run. That will open you up to a couple of options. So the first option I have for you is the AXIS M2025LE. This is going to give you a resolution of 2560 uh by just under 1900, I know they don't have the second resolution listed here, but it's not 1920. Um, if you purchase that camera, anytime you're looking for outdoor wildlife photography, the higher the resolution, the better. So obviously, if you can afford a 4K camera, go that route. Um, for me, the minimum would be, 90, would be 1080p, and, and, the, and, the, and the 2025 surpasses that 2560 by 1920. Um, the other option I had for you is we could actually build this from scratch. Pine sixty four has a camera out, an IP based camera. Now this would it, this would be somewhat of a project. This would not be you just buy it and plug it in. If you want to just buy it and plug it in, go buy yourself an Axis M twenty twenty five LE or go look at their P series. It's going to cost you a little bit more, but you get Wi Fi. Um, but no matter which camera you go for, uh, you if you just want one to to purchase, buy it, screw it up. Both of those uh, both of the Axis series are going to be weatherproof, so you're not going to have a, a, a problem from that standpoint. But the Pine 64 provides an if I was doing this project, if I wanted to go get uh, video or or, uh, capture things from a a birdhouse, what I would do is I'd purchase this Pine 64 camera and I might try to build it into the birdhouse. So you can actually look out the birdhouse and the birds can come in and and see you'll have some weather. I mean, it won't be completely weatherproof because obviously the front of the birdhouse will be open. um, But I think you could build it in such a way that it, it stayed out of the way of most of the elements and if you couldn't there are outdoor enclosures from bnh photo video i have one link for you in the show notes at com. it's called the pelco outdoor enclosure and it's a ip camera enclosure that you can use to make any camera uh, weather resistant to include the pine 64 ip camera now one important note with the pine 64 they are not considered a production device it is decidedly a dev kit so it's something that you are going to have to build but, you know, the M2025, I think, is almost $400. So for the price difference of, uh, of under 100 bucks, uh, even with the enclosure, and then you get to, to, to build the camera the way that you want to build the camera and have it do the thing that you want to do. It's going to come with a basic Linux installation. So what you're going to have to do is find a way to generate an RTSP or RTMP stream. There's a couple different ways you can do that. Uh, you could do that with VLC. We'll do that. FFmpeg. We'll do that. And so you could set that up to just, uh, to, to start a camera stream and then you can pull that in the exact same way that you'd pull in any other camera stream from Dahua or Unify or access or any of the other companies. And that is through like something like a Synology NVR installed with surveillance stations. If that doesn't work. Give me a call. Give me a call back or shoot me an email. Um, our next email comes from, uh, who is this from? Internet filtering, it doesn't, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, headset recommendations. I'm spending more of my day on Zoom, and I'm looking to purchase a medium to high-end headset and microphone combination. Do you have any recommendations? Thanks, David. So... Typically, my go-to headset when companies or businesses uh, ask, it's it's typically because they're doing some sort of communication, and, and for that, I tend to recommend Plantronics. Plantronics has been the headset manufacturer, microphone headset manufacturer for NASA for years, um, and they always produce high-quality, very high-end products that that deliver, and you get what you pay for. Typically telephony is assumed that it's going over something like G711 at 64 kilobits per second. And the quality of this or the quality of uh, uh, an ordinary phone call is just not going to be great. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense for Plantronics or other headset manufacturers if they're manufacturing for telecommunications to put a lot of research, time and effort into a microphone. These days, in the era of covid We are doing a lot of our communication from the computer. And of course, with the computer, things like the Opus Kodak, which provides an almost indistinguishable from in-person quality, Uh, the microphone quality does matter. And so I try to stay away from things that are specifically made for telephony if we're looking, if quality is, is, is a factor here. So there's a few options you can go with. The first is if you want the absolute best quality, what you're wanting to do is separate out your devices. So just like a spork doesn't make a particularly great fork and it doesn't make a particularly great spoon, but you get a fork and a spoon in one, the same thing is true for any sort of combined audio device. Any microphone that has a digital to audio converter, that is to say instead of having an audio connector, instead it has a USB connector, um, what they're doing is they're building in that audio interface into the microphone itself. And as you might imagine, when you call China and say, hey, I want to buy an audio interface, and the, 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 the key thing here is we need it to fit inside of the microphone itself. You can understand the kind of quality that you're gonna get out of that. And so what, what I start with is a really great uh, audio interface, and I'm, I'm partial to the Zoom U22. Now this is a small little audio interface, and I typically use it anytime I have somewhere where I need to get a professional microphone uh, into a computer in the least expensive way possible. The U22 is, can be powered off of batteries or it can be powered off of the USB bus. It comes with a dedicated uh, input gain as well as a dedicated headphone monitor output. Uh, tiny little device can fit in your pocket and cost 99 bucks on Amazon. Now, I pair that with a boundary microphone, and this is a microphone that is if you've ever been to a hockey game or a, or a basketball game, they have little microphones around the court, and that's what allows you to hear like the stick or the ice noise and stuff like that. That's known as a boundary microphone. They're about 90 bucks, and I've taken one of those and placed it on my desk, and that allows me to speak just as if I had uh, the microphone in, in my laptop, but it's going to offer a much better experience, and then if I need to do something where, where quality is everything, so for example, I'm filling in on the air or I'm, I'm giving an interview, making an important business call, then I tend to use a headset. And I use a broadcast headset made by a company called Sennheiser and that will plug into the exact same USB audio interface that I had the boundary microphone. The difference is I'm going to get a much better microphone and a much better sound because the microphone is closer to my house and it's a little bit more directional. This also gives me the opportunity to tie it into a mixer and so I can feed other audio back to the remote caller like laptop, my phone, etc. If you want the cheapest, I just need to get it done. I need something that I can order on Amazon and I don't have hundreds of dollars to spend on it, then I'm going to recommend the G-E-E-C-O-O Xberia USB Pro Gaming Headset. It's less than $30. It's available to Amazon Prime. It works natively on Linux. It has a built-in USB audio DAC. Um, But the nice thing about it is it's got thousands and thousands of reviews with from people that are very happy with the quality. And so, if you're looking to split the difference between those two, that's something that I, I would take a look at that Jake Xperia, I'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. Stephen writes in Hello, Noah. I filter my home internet using Smoothwall on a VM and OpenDNS. The VM is a giant hp 2 u server and it's very loud and it's heating up my room. I'd like to ditch this big server, but I'd like to retain the following capabilities. I'd like to filter the internet, no porn or malware sites, etc. I'd like to be able to block specific websites. I would like the ability to schedule access to the internet, turn off at bedtime. Performance is very important to me. The solution can't slow down the internet too much. I would love to be able to use all open source or open hardware. I have Dan's Guardian, now E2 Guardian Circle, and others in the past. Dan Guardian was my favorite because it would filter based on content of the page rather than a curated list of sites, but it required a lot of tinkering. Thanks, Steven. So Steven, if I was looking for an all in one solution, I would probably start with pfSense. pfSense is going to allow you to do all of the scheduling, all of the content filtering you're looking to do. And performance is going to be incredible. It's also open source. And so it's available. You can install it on an existing piece of hardware. If you have it, you can purchase dedicated tiny little boxes that are fanless and noiseless and, and, and very good on, on, on cooling by the way, such as the SG 1100. Um, But And you also have the option to use an add-on called PF Blocker NG, which provides PF Sense Firewall the ability to make an allow or deny decision based on the items such as geolocation, IP address, Alexa rating, domain name, those kinds of things. And so this is going to allow you to filter a, a, a little bit easier. I mean, you could go in and just make manual rules, right? Find something that it can latch onto that PFSense can identify a particular site you don't want to be delivered, and you can go ahead and kill that. That's one way to do it. But PFBlockerNG provides you an additional way to do it. Now, you could get away with the filtering, and you could do that on a piehole. Indeed, this is how I'm doing my house. I have a piehole that sits there, and that's what's resolving all of my DNS requests. The problem with that is scheduling the Internet, and I'm not sure how within PiHole itself you could handle that, particularly if it's on a per-client basis. What we've done at our house is we use the PiHole for filtering, and then we control the access to the internet for the kids through Unify's management of SSIDs. So their Wi-Fi shuts off at a given time, and that's gonna that gives us the ability to all be on one network. So if we want to play Minecraft or browse the file server, so on and so forth. Those kinds of things are going to work great. We all connect to the same network. They just lose access to their SSID earlier than we do. Hope that helps. I've linked a guide to using PFBlocker in the show notes. You can find that at Com. Sometimes it can be useful to run the same program multiple times sometimes you need to simulate two different users or you need to try a, a one particular program in two different ways well snapcraft allows you the ability to run snaps as parallel installs parallel installs enable you to run multiple instances of the same snap on the same system each instance is completely isolated from all other instances including its configuration Interface connections, data locations, services, applications, and aliases. Now, this feature is considered experimental. In particular, the snap install will fail if it has the same name already installed. So you can't just install it twice. You got to do something. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but not much. Uh, you start by just entering the command sudo snap set system space experimental.parallel. Instances equals true. And we'll have that command for you in the show notes. You'll need Snapd version 2.36 or later if you want to use the parallel installs with strictly confined snaps. And you're going to need version 2.43 or later if you want to use snaps using the classic confinement. Um, this is really useful, not only from a troubleshooting standpoint. But it's also useful from the standpoint that, again, sometimes you need to simulate users and sometimes you need to say, can this user talk to this user or can this thing do this thing? And if I put it here, how fast does this go here? Being able to run both of those instances on the same machine in their own containers is what I think is going to push container technology uh, into as the default standard for the desktop, because you not only have the security and, and flexibility that comes with it, now you have the ability to, to, to use that for troubleshooting and, and, and moving forward forward. So excited to see that. And so if you weren't aware of that, go ahead and enable the multiple instances features and give that a shot. Our gadget of the week, this is, I've most of you know that I've been in the market for quite some time for a really great pocket PC. If you've ever met up with me at a conference or you've ever met me in person, you know that I take my laptop everywhere with me. And I do that because I never know when I'm going to need instant access to uh, to my company and to email and all of the resources I have now i 've looked at the GPD pocket in the past, but when they officially dropped support for Linux, I became a little bit skeptical and even though there are reports that it still works, I figure if i 'm going to look at a company that doesn 't officially support Linux, why not see what else is out there? I came across the uh, the O Sirius A and it combines the connectivity and functionality that you want with a personal computer with the portability you expect from today 's phones. Uh, It looks like a wedge phone. Essentially, it looks like a phone with a really fat back end. So it kind of creates a wedge. It has an Intel Atom X7 Z8750 processor, 8 gigs of RAM, and 120 gigabytes of flash storage. Now, they do have a, it it resells for, for $799. And what I like about it is it literally has the form factor of a phone, but they use the wedge shape of it to incorporate all of the connectors. That you would need, like Ethernet, USB, Type- C, those kinds of things. Now they have a cheaper version, a four-gig uh, RAM model and a 64-gig flash storage. For 100 bucks less, it's 699, but I'm not interested in that. I'm mostly interested in the 128 and an 8 gigabyte RAM. So again, it's called the Ocle Sirius. I haven't made a decision yet if, if this is something I'm actually going to order. I'm still kind of looking and researching into it, but I'd not come across this and there are very few actual pocket pieces out there. So this is one of the things that caught my attention. I thought it was pretty interesting and I'll continue to kind of keep my eye out in this realm to see if if something comes up. But eventually I'm going to land on something that I'm just going to take around in my pocket all the time because More and more, I'm finding that I just can't get the level of uh, the level of work done. I need to be be able to get done on my phone. And it's becoming increasingly to carry is becoming increasingly inconvenient to carry my backpack with me everywhere when everybody else is able to work just off of their phone. In the news this week, NextCloud Hub 20 is a dramatic step for users, bringing different platforms they use during the day into an integrated experience. This can reduce friction, improve reaction times, avoid context switching, and ultimately bring greater productivity to tens of millions of users across the globe, all while protecting data security and digital sovereignty of private and enterprise Users. So this is a direct quote from Frank Karlochek, obviously talking about NextCloud Hub 20. The new dashboard provides a great starting point for the day with over a dozen widgets ranging from Twitter, GitHub, Moodle, mod are already available. The new dashboard, it, it, this is what you have been looking for in a piece of open source software when you're running your business. The amount of time that I take in the morning, which is like a five to 10 minute deal just to go through and open up all of the things and get connected to all of the things just so that I can see what's going to happen for my day. And what NextCloud is aiming to do here is make work social, make work social and make your tools social so that they connect to other things. And the reality is Twitter, GitHub, Moodle, zamod These are all things that are already part of our daily process. Most of us, depending on what what industry you're in and. What NextCloud aims to be is the one-stop shop to get access to all of those things. Now, it gets even better because talk has been introduced with bridging so you can get to other platforms to include Microsoft Teams, Slack, IRC, and, you guessed it, Matrix. The notifications that activities were brought together, making sure that you won't miss anything important, and they've added a status setting so that you can communicate to other users what you're up to. Deck, which is... Then, huh, Deck. Count the ways I love thee. Integrates with dashboard, search, and introduces calendar integration uh, for card editing and series of smaller improvements. And if you've not used Deck, it's a task management system, and it's fantastic. Now with Nextcloud twenty, other third-party services such as Microsoft Teams, Slack, Jira, GitHub, Twitter, and dozens of others are being integrated. It adds to the existing strength by using an open application programming interface, the Open Collaboration Services also known as OCS. This, this long-established API started as part of KDE's open desktop standardization efforts back in 2009, and OSC now handles basic file functions like access, sharing, versioning, and commenting. It also covers communication, calendaring, and task management. We in the FOSS world are finally getting our game together, and it feels great. Your choices... As of a few weeks ago, we're Office 365 and G Suite, and FOSS is finally getting to the point in the world where we can offer this as a real alternative to businesses. The feature set of NextCloud is so attractive that people are actually excited to switch to a service and excited to move from a proprietary platform to an open-source platform, and I've watched this unfold in real life. Why? Because they finally trust the place where they can store their data because their their trust has been abused time after time again. And it's not the data privacy part of it. It's the fact that they're constantly bombarded with a new thing that they have to use, a new tool that they have to migrate their data to, a different place that they have to go, another subscription that they have to have. This is a place where their data is safe, where they pay with their wallet rather than their privacy. And they don't have the hassle of managing an IT infrastructure. They just get the benefits of their friends Uh, that have an Office 365 or, or G Suite subscription. They just show up and the tool works. The difference between this, the free and open source home, and the other home is this doesn't have any bars or gates on the windows or doors. You decide to come in. If you like the party, you're welcome to stick around. If you don't like the party, if you don't like what we have to offer, you're welcome to bail. And this is happening. Companies are doing this. And very, very well recognized names of companies are switching to open source software every single day. And some of them I can talk about and some of them I can't talk about. But I'll give you an example. I went to download firmware from NetGate. So anybody who has done business with NetGate and has downloaded a new firmware image for any of their routers already knows what I'm about to say. Went to NetGate to download firmware image, found out they're using NextCloud to distribute their firmware and support their clients with it. Do you know why? Because NetGate gets it. NetGate doesn't want to have an added cost from Dropbox. And they don't want to have to deal with the fact that Facebook is going to shut off Access to the EU market um, because they, there's a government disagreement. They just want to be able to ship and sell routers. And when people need a firmware, they just need to be able, people to be able to download that, that link from their site. And Nextcloud enables them to do that. Nextcloud enables our business to function. Nextcloud enables businesses all across the globe to function. And here's why in particular this is huge. The open collaboration services, this protocol, the ability. To bridge and connect to other services is paramount. And I've seen how important this function of bridging is uh, with Matrix. People are happy with all of the tools that Matrix, Teams, Slack, Discord, Facebook Messenger, email text, it doesn't matter. Most people don't really care what the messaging platform is. It works well enough for them. The problem has become people... People are just sick of switching. They're sick of having to choose a new platform. They want to pick one thing and be done with it, and they want to stay there. And every time they change jobs, every time they change, every time the company, uh, even within a certain job, changes, they're back to the beginning, and they have to start all over again. And that gets to be frustrating, and that's difficult for people to to internalize. Um And so anyway, so I'm, I'm super happy for what, uh, for what Nextcloud has done there. And the way they're doing this on the back end is they're shipping MatterBridge as a separate app. And this is installed automatically when Nextcloud talk, uh, when the admin enables the MatterBridge integration. So instead of using the binary that they ship, uh, the admin can also install MatterBridge directly locally. Now that connection is a channel per channel. So a channel moderator can configure a bridge in the settings on the right-hand side, and that monitor that moderator can choose a protocol like IRC or Slack's or Teams. And once that's enabled, messages to the room are simply bridged, and you can then communicate with multiple channels, or you can sync a lot of things to a single room. So you can create a single talk room that connects to two IRC, excuse me, two IRC rooms, a Matrix room, a Teams room. Whenever a user says something in Teams, it gets replicated to the talk room, the two IRCs room, and Matrix. And when a user says something in Talk, it gets replicated to Teams, the two IRC rooms, and Matrix, so on and so forth. So the bridge keeps running even if you're not logged into the browser. And of course, this addresses, uh, one of the, one of the, the key shortcomings back in the IRC days. Uh, Slack works with a token. MatterBridge doc is good. Um, but must be carefully followed because of the new Slack app type does not provide compatible tokens, so the classic deprecated app type must be must be selected. Matrix, as you might expect, is flawless. Classic login, password authentication. Mattermost, as you might expect, flawless. Classic login, password authentication. IRC, basic, no auth, no nick, password. But they're extending the configuration. XMPP and Jabber, they don't quite have working uh, yet. They're still working on that um and uh microsoft teams is still being tested and that's not uh, i guess a huge surprise to me because at the end of the day it's teams it's going to be somewhat difficult to work with now our next guest is matthew miller he is the fedora project lead and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show matthew thanks so much for taking the time welcome to the program
0: hi Noah, thanks Always happy to be here.
1: I appreciate you taking the time. So let's start with this. Fedora 33 is right around the corner uh, in October, and it comes with a few changes that I kind of wanted to talk to you about. So the first is, what is with Nano? Nano being the default terminal-based text <laughs> editor. for? Yeah, I have been using VI for the last 15 years, ever since I got into it and couldn't figure out how to exit. Why the change?
0: Oh, yeah, right, well, exactly. You've been, you have just been stuck in that terminal. It's still, you're typing a whole bunch of characters in it, hoping something's going to happen. Um, we wanted to make a change that would be more friendly for users who are not not used to the command line, not necessarily newbies, but you know, programmers who are used to a GUI environment these days who are you know, using Git and they suddenly do a Git commit and they're thrown into a text editor with no hint onto what to do next. So I'm an old school sysadmin. I know how to use Vi, um, but it's not a great editor for just casual editing. It really takes some commitment to become a VI Vim person. And our goal is to, you know, we want to enable people who to have that experience, but you shouldn't be dumped into it. Surprise, now you've got a learn challenge. Um, actually, there was just a Twitter exchange I was seeing about, you know, what 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 Linux needs to do to you know, dominate the world, as people always discuss. And one of the uh, first points someone made is we need to stop making it so that um, you're bombarded with things that feel like you need to learn new terminology, learn new things just to be able to get, you know, to be accepted into using this operating system. So we want to just smooth that a little bit. That's basically the intention.
1: I, th- You know, I think that makes perfect sense. And the reality is Vim is still there, right? Somebody wants to use it if they're, in the habit of typing VI and then opening a text editor, they have the option of doing that, right?
0: Yeah, and you can set the editor variable to change the default for however you want. Uh, True confessions, I actually use the Joe editor most of the time, so I'm already reconfiguring things from the default, so...
1: Well, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad to hear that there is a shifting mentality to be welcoming to new users so they don't feel like they have to learn magical incantations to be able to edit a config file. Um, There is some more exciting stuff, though, that's happening, Matthew. Instead of swap, you are switching to something called ZRAM. Um, ZRAM is a RAM drive that uses compression. And due to that compression, it uses half as much memory um, as as its size. Tell me a little bit about ZRAM and, and how that works.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like everything old is new again. There was something from like the late 80s or 90s that they did the same thing in DOS. Uh, sorry, flashback time. Uh, but basically, anytime you're hitting swap, it's just so much slower than RAM that it's it's a bad situation. So we wanted to do something, especially on you know less, uh, less memory-full laptops and things, to make them... Uh, able to cope with situations where they get near the edge of that. And basically, only a tiny little bit of memory is used by the RAM drive unless you hit it. And then when you hit swap, whatever would be going to swap on disk is now ends up being compressed in RAM. And it turns out the stuff that usually goes to swap compresses really well. So uh, two times is conservative, maybe even more than that. So it effectively gives you close to having more RAM without actually having more RAM on your system. Um, I have yet to see some really solid performance benchmarks, but just the basic playing around with it, it looks like it's pretty good.
1: So, if if you'll excuse my ignorance, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. It's a drive that you create dynamically in on RAM itself, and then it's kind of like a reserved emergency portion of RAM that then is written to hmm. in the event that the actual memory is running out.
0: Yeah, it's not even reserved. It just it is. Um, it it grows when needed. Um, so I see. You can. Yeah. Uh, it, it's In some ways, it's like uh, if you ever looked at tempfs, like the slash temp on Fedora and most Linux distributions, mm-hmm. I think now, um, it it basically, it's just a file. It looks like a file system. It looks like disk. But if you put stuff in there, they go to RAM instead of um, going to you know go actually going onto a disk anywhere and if you don't have anything there it doesn't take up any space so it's basically like that
1: so and again this is probably mostly due to my ignorance of of how memory works but so if the memory is filling up and the the purpose of swap space is if the if the memory gets too full that the kernel doesn't panic it can then just write to swap space how does putting that back into ram not cause Uh, the system to run out of memory uh,
0: The magic is this happens to be compressed then. So the stuff that gets put there gets squished down. So it takes up less space than it did when it was in actual memory.
1: Ah, okay. So it's the compression that actually saves us. I see. Okay, very
0: cool. Pretty clever.
1: It is. And this is going to be the the, the default going forward in in 33? Yeah, for
0: the desktop versions, at least. I'm not sure what the cloud and server um, things are going. And I think that... Uh, Some of the ARM stuff actually already had this previously, so we already tested it out on some of those embedded devices, because it makes a really big difference there, obviously, because those tend to have, you know, one, two, four gigabytes of RAM, where Mm -hmm. it's really painful.
1: Let's talk a little bit about SystemD-ResolveD. This is being turned on by, uh, is being enabled by default in fedora thirty three and it's the ability to provide network name resolution for local applications via Dbus. Um Can you talk to me a little bit about what the practical ramifications of this are and how it benefits users? I think that in most cases users won't
0: notice if it's a successful change. Um, I know it has a secure DNS uh, component. This is not actually a thing i'm super expert on in fact my main my main feeling right now is um, I'm a little bit frustrated with it because it's got some rough edges still going into the distro and we might end up delaying the beta for it. So oh, okay. I, I don't know. We'll see. Um, or it might end up getting reverted. Um, I, I think... Um, yeah, it's not something that I've put a lot into. Sorry, I can't give you a good answer on this one.
1: No, that's, that's perfectly fine. I'm mostly interested in kind of where, where, where you're at with that. Um, so this isn't a serious change, but it's pretty cool. You now have an animated background based on the time of day. This is the kind of eye candy, the kind of polish that I think we don't often get in the Linux land. And you're doing it, at Fedor. It's cool. Tell me about it.
0: I love our Fedora design team. We've actually had these a couple times before. Sometimes um, just timelines and things haven't worked out to make do the whole animation, but we have a really awesome community process where for each release, the design team in Fedora, which anybody is welcome to come and join. Um, I, this is my soapbox. You don't have to be a programmer to be involved in Fedora. In fact... Although we always can use, you know, programming help and coding and engineering, like the vast need is actually in all these other areas. And we've got a great welcoming design team and every you know, six months or so they work on making this new wallpaper and it's done a great job. Fedora always looks beautiful because of it. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty neat.
1: That's very cool, and like I said, it's the it's the kind of one extra step of polish that I think is just going to to really wow users. Um, so the big news is ButterFS, the new default file system. Now this has been uh, in uh, this has been testable in Rawhide since as the default file system since early July. Um, obviously, with ButterFS being the default system in Fedora going forward, um, you have some new features and some additional functionality that are going to be available to Fedora users. Now, um, you know compression. Cheap writable snapshots, multiple device support, those kinds of things. Talk a little bit about the practical ramifications to the users for going to Butterfest. What are they going to see?
0: So I think this is another one where I hope users don't see much of a difference if it's successful, and it's under the hood kind of improvements. If people notice it a lot, we've probably they're probably noticing it because of problems. So I hope I hope nobody notices for the next six months or so, um, and then in the future it does give some groundwork to make some of those other things you've suggested and advanced users can enable those things now. But for most users, again, like if you have to worry about your file system, it's probably a problem. So hopefully we don't have that happening in the future. I mean, there's some nice stuff where uh, ButterFS makes sure your data on disk is, you know, the integrity of it is preserved. And so this is actually some of the things we've been struggling with where um, some of the, the, I don't know how much background everybody listening to this will have, but um, the people from Facebook actually were involved in coming to us and saying, Hey, we're, you know, we have some Facebook developers who are working on Butterfest. We think this should be the default for Fedora. We've got our experience using this widespread at Facebook to back up how, you know, this is a, this is a good move to make. And one of the things is that, You may have something on, you're using a traditional x 4 or XFS file system, and you end up with corrupted data. Uh, You might not even notice, and you may just, years later, discover that some of your photos are messed up or something. With ButterFS, it tends to be very conservative about, uh, there was an error here, and sometimes those errors can end up being, it makes it very hard to recover and access your data when uh, you might not have even noticed a problem on the older file systems. Um, so some of the work that, you know, has been going forward at getting this into Fedora and making it the default has been trying to make that recovery more smooth and and to make it more clear. Like, the problem here was your drive failed. It wasn't that ButterFS was the problem. This was going to be a problem no, no matter what, but it looks like ButterFS. Um Again, if that's happening to people and they're having a bad experience, we want to make sure that they know you know where what, what the source of the bad
1: experience is. You just want the new file system to be in place. We don't actually even necessarily need to take advantage of any of the things that we have. Down the road, maybe, you know, let's, I'll just say 10, 10 versions down the road as to illustrate that I'm not trying to hold you to a timeline here, but it enables you to get to the point where normal people can open up a disk utility or a backup utility or a snapshot utility and just say make a snapshot of my machine or even do a snapshot automatically before I update the system. And should I ever run into trouble, I can just roll back. These things now become possible, don't they?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. That, that is, that are the, those are the kind of things that are enabled. And so um, it'll be exciting to get there. I just want to make sure our first steps go smoothly because once you have a bad experience with the file system, I think this is a lot of what ButterFS is dealing with now a lot of people had bad experiences with ButterFS like five years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago. And once that happens, you're very reluctant to try it ever again. So we wanna make sure that people's first experience is smooth. And then we can get to that cool stuff with the snapshots and like the send receive backups, um, possibly you know, um, encryption in new and different ways. Um, and yeah, compression, all, all those, those cool things that you can get. Um, but we're just not quite ready for that yet. So we want to move forward, but carefully.
1: I respect you for that and the entire Fedora team for taking that approach. That is the right way to go uh, move slow, but do it right. Uh, I have to ask Matthew, because this is just fun. I saw your tweet. I have a six Gen X1 Carbon. It is by far the best laptop I've ever owned in my life, bar none. So I just have to get your thoughts. What do you think of the 8th Gen X1 that came pre-installed with Fedora?
0: Oh, it is so nice. Um, I've actually been playing with it and reinstalling it. I'm using my Gen 6 right now for this interview, but um, I've got it here. I've been uh, messing around with it. Um, The screen is completely gorgeous. It's a 4K screen and the uh, Wayland scaling just works beautifully. I didn't have any, oh no, everything's too tiny experience with it at all. It, um, It just is pure gorgeous. I have it in the backyard. Turn the brightness up so bright. It's like Daylight, I mean, it overpowers the sun, um, and the system itself is nice and smooth, and everything just works. And it was so exciting to turn it on, boot it up, and then have the Fedora logo come at me from a computer that I, you know, came in commercial packaging. Uh, so cool.
1: For those that don't know, this is the uh, this is part of the hardware partnership that you guys have signed with Lenovo to to ship Lenovo laptops pre-installed with Fedora. Matthew, what has been the response to the Lenovo partnership with Fedora, and what are the next steps to that program? A lot of people are speculating that this ThinkPad deal was really just the start. I I hope
0: it is, yeah. Uh, and the ThinkPad people at Lenovo are looking at doing a lot more Linux enablement across all of their all of their ThinkPad line, hopefully some of the lower-end models as well, but we're focusing on kind of the ThinkPad workstation level line to start with because that's kind of where the demand came from. And uh, this was demand-driven. Their customer said, we want you to ship a laptop with Fedora, please. And so they came to us and said, Let, let's make this happen. And they've just been really pleasant to work with, and I'm really excited about their attitude towards everything, um, you know, very accommodating towards our. We want everything to be open source, and um, they want everything to be you know as Fedora produces it rather than some sort of modified version. You know, we had a tentative meeting. Where we're like, so you're gonna want to put a bunch of apps and stuff on here that are like Lenovo things, and they said, oh no, none of that. We that's not our interest for this model. That's uh, we want it. We want the pure experience. So that's that cool. is
1: so great. That is awesome. And so as the, you know, because one of the things I, I walk around Red Hat Tower and as I as I walk around and I look at all of the Lenovo Thinkpads that Red Hat is buying, it's clear to me, <laughs> it's clear to me that this large multi billion dollar company has an investment in the Linux desktop. And they're clearly they're displaying that what they need is a hardware manufacturer to come alongside them and say, here's our world class software. We would like to compete in this space can somebody deliver hardware and if that if that partnership exists and now it does from my perspective as an IT, as an owner of an it company when i go into places and say here's something i would recommend you look at now they can go to the same manufacturer the same pc supplier that they're purchasing their windows 10 desktops from and they can get a computer that has the the, the fedora operating system installed back by by red hat at least at least de- developmentally funded by red hat This shifts the paradigm a little bit, Matthew, because now we're in a place where people can order these systems from a PC manufacturer, they arrive, and and people just pull them out of the box and they're able to use it. What kind of support infrastructure is around that, either from the Fedora community or Red Hat the company?
0: So, yeah, Red Hat the company supports RHEL. RHEL is the product, and uh, Red Hat's investment in has a big investment in the desktop, but that is mostly targeted at... um, the technical workstation space, like animation studios use RHEL workstation. Uh, In the consumer space, that's just a very difficult market. And it's almost not even a market because it's not somewhere you can really make money at. So it's not been a super, Red Hat is an enterprise company, not a consumer company, hasn't been particularly interested. But I think there's a realization that it's strategically important to have a foothold there. And so Red Hat's investment in you know, the Fedora community and the Fedora desktop community there helps, um, you know, connect into the whole Red Hat ecosystem that Fedora is part of. Uh, so our support there is, you know, our standard, you know, community support ask Fedora, uh, Project.org is Uh, very, very great, quick, friendly, helpful answers. Um, And actually Lenovo has their own support. So this is the first line of support here is uh, if you've got a problem with it, uh, call Lenovo and they will help you, even though you say they're not going to do, oh, you're running Linux? Never mind. They will actually help you solve your problem. Um, And so you're not just on your own. There's also a Lenovo uh, Fedora forum that people can go to and get help. And um, some of the people that I've worked with actually on the thinkPad team are active in that forum. so I know for sure you can get expert responses
1: there. That's really fantastic. So this has really been thought out end to end. and I really I commend you and the Fedora team for for the for the unquestionable amount of work that you've had to do to get to this point. How would you pitch Fedora to other hardware manufacturers?
0: Fedora uh, tends to follow the upstream very quickly. Um, which gives you two advantages. Uh, first of all, if your hardware you know, is new, we are likely to have kernel support already, or if you're working in the upstream, you can get support for your hardware there. So it um, it's not something where there's you know a five-year-old kernel that you have to figure out how to get it to work. And all of that new software is nice and shiny for users as well. And like I said earlier, we try to make a nice polished uh, new user experience we try, that balances that getting the new stuff and uh making it work nicely together um, as a as a offering to users uh, so I think it's definitely something to look into um, I think uh, you know Lenovo came to us saying, you know this people want fedora, and I hope that people are saying that to the other laptop manufacturers and so on as well because that obviously works a lot better than us going out and saying trying to convince a company that it's worthwhile
1: absolutely there has been a discussion among developers to consider dropping biosupport and focus exclusively on UEFI. Um, why is this being considered and why is that beneficial to most Fedora users?
0: It is just a lot more modern and a more clean solution. And But again, for most Fedora users, I don't think you'll care. It doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, that's my, my honest uh, answer
1: most of the time if they're using a computer built in the next what, what last 12 years 15 years it probably has UEFI support
0: yeah absolutely it'll that'll just work i think some of the problems are around a lot of the virtualization stuff doesn't necessarily it'll it'll take a little bit of change in how people set up their virtualization because that tends to use an emulated bios but it, all things are possible
1: Talk to me a little bit about the Ambassador Program. What is the Ambassador Program? Who is the right fit for the Ambassador Program? And tell me a little bit about the Ambassador Program revamp.
0: Yeah, so um, Marie Norton, who is our F-CAKE, that's Fedora Community Action and Impact Coordinator, um, which is a fancy title that we came up with because I hate the word community manager. We can talk about that at length if you want to talk about my hate for the term community manager. Um, but... Anyways, that's a sidetrack. Uh, Marie has been working on this with some of the other people you um, know, in our mindshare committee, because it's the, you know, the team in Fedora that's responsible for our outreach to the world efforts. And, uh, I have to rewind a little bit to to what the ambassadors program is to say the story properly. So it's actually one of the oldest groups that's been active in Fedora, and it's people who are you know basically interested in sharing what Fedora as a project is and what our offerings are to other people in the world, and you know that's that's the ambassadorship from Fedora as a project to the outside, uh, and you know from the outside theoretically back in about what people need. And so this has been, you know, people who go to conferences back when going to conferences with things, work the booth and the table, go to their, you know, Linux users groups and talk about it and have student clubs that show off Fedora, that kind of thing. Um, And this was pretty active like 10 years ago, but for various reasons, kind of declined in activity. And um, I've said this other places, but I'll say it again, because it was my fault in some ways, because... Uh, One of the things I did when I first came in as photo project leader, I looked at our budget and I was trying to say, how are we getting impact for the money we're spending? We're spending, you know, $15,000 on events in Europe. Where does, you know, what are we getting back from that? That's a lot of money. And the ambassadors at the time in Europe were having a meeting to plan their events for the next year. And one of the, the things they were planning to do was get together for a laser tag activity as part of the planning. And I was just like, wait, laser tag. Now that sounds like a boondoggle. That's like, you know, you're spending money just for fun and not doing something that benefits Fedora. And so I shut that down. And I think that was, in retrospect, a obvious mistake. Um, it maybe took me a little too long to learn it. But having that kind of fun actually does have meaningful impact because it brings to get people together and makes them a functional team and makes them excited about being part of this so this is a long way of saying the new ambassadors in the revamp are building up we're going to include fun in it there may actually be laser tag once laser tag is a, uh, again a thing but there will uh, be be things that are uh interesting just you know to be part of the community um uh, and um, there'll, be, there'll be room for that kind of enjoyment. It doesn't need to be all work. Um, who should be a Fedora ambassador? You know, anybody who really is excited about the technology and even more excited about the Fedora community and wants to share that with other people. Um, and, you know, if you're a Fedora user and you're like, I would like to give back and get involved, the ambassadors program is a great way to start because it can, you know, you can just take that, that enthusiasm you have and help spread that to other people.
1: Matthew, before I let you go, anything else coming up uh, with the Fedora uh, next upcoming release of Fedora 33?
0: Yeah, the release should be coming out. I'm, I'm hoping we're going to have another on-time release with all these changes. Um, I'm just going to forewarn if we end up slipping a week or two, it, it might happen. I know we used to have a pretty bad reputation for never making our deadlines, but we've solidified that a little bit. I hope we get forgiven if you know it happens we don't meet this one. Um, but that's part of what happens when you can you know see the whole schedule and the process. A lot of projects don't tell you when their release day is, so they always feel like they're on time. Well, with Fedora, it's all in the public, so you know you can see what's going on. Uh, but whether or not it's a week or two late, it is going to be another awesome release, both on the desktop and Fedora IoT, which is going to become an addition this time around. So get kind of a top level promotion. That's the Internet of Things Fedora for running on small devices and using a technology a lot like in CoreOS to uh, make atomic updates and have all your actual workload running in in containers. Um, It's a pretty cool uh, thing for you doing both home and at scale IoT. Uh, That's one of the highlights that I would I'd feel bad if I hadn't mentioned that because that's a really cool thing that people behind that put a lot of work into it.
1: Matthew Miller, he is the Fedora Project lead and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We'll get you back on the program real soon.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I'll be glad to be back. Maybe after after that release comes out, we'll talk about how things went.
1: <laughs> that sounds great, Matthew. Uh, indeed, I do have a seventh-gen ThinkPad that I'm going to be testing Fedora 33 on, so make sure to stay, stay tuned to that. I'll tell you what I love uh, about Fedora's passion. I have been a Fedora user every version since Fedora 1, and the where I think Fedora is unique and where Fedora really fits well is if you are a system administrator and you work day in, day out and you need the reliability, security and stability of a company like Red Hat and you need that on you know, on your servers. The nice thing about Fedora is it lets you play a little bit in the land of technology that's up for experimenting, uh, that's up for experimentation to be later included In in CentOS and RHEL. And that relationship that they've had for a very long time uh, serves people very, very well. And no doubt a huge appreciation and, and and a huge congratulations to the Fedora team for landing the deal with Lenovo and delivering these premium computers to people uh, pre-installed with Fedora. It's absolutely fantastic. Hey, I like I said, I have my, in my possession that 7th Gen X1 Carbon, so keep an eye out for a review as well as an update on how well Linux works on it. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, JT, our producer. All of the notes can be found at podcast.asknoahshow.com, so if you want links to the things I'm mentioning, the products I'm talking about, the picks, they're all there. Head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. Follow us on Twitter to get the latest up-to-date news. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. See you next week!